Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Daryl Stickle. Uh, he's devoted his career to understanding trust, what it is, how it functions, and how to increase it. He holds a PhD in business from Duke University. And before founding Trust Unlimited in 2001, he was a consultant at McKinsey & Company, the world-renowned global management consulting firm. Uh, since then, he's helped leaders build trust in a wide range of businesses and personal environments, including financial services, telecoms, high-tech, families, and the Canadian military in Afghanistan. He's also a professor at the Luxembourg School of Business Teaching in the MBA program and in their executive education program. <clears throat> and his new book out now is called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in, in an Uncertain World. Welcome, Daryl. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely, man. So, you know, as I was going through your books, the thing that kind of struck me and stuck out to me the most being that I'm a CBT therapist, and obviously Alan and I cover kind of cognitive biases and the way we make mistakes in our thinking mm -hmm. is uh, your framework about sort of how people kind of build and I guess sort of demolish trust in other people, right? So obviously, a lot of what this book focuses on is trust, right? Um, and so I want to first read a passage and I actually want to get into it. So in this one, Daryl writes, when we like someone, we have a positive story about them. We sort for confirming evidence of that story, and we are more likely to trust them. When it comes time to evaluate our interactions with people we like, we are more likely to view those interactions positively, once again, confirming our story about them. If we see the outcome of the interaction as positive, we are more likely to give them credit for that positive outcome. If the outcome can't be seen as anything but negative, we likely blame the outcome on the situation, the context, rather than the person we like. This whole process can cause us to be to like these people even more, creating a virtuous cycle. And then obviously reading on, you kind of say that the opposite is true too, where a person, if they have already a negative perception of somebody, it sort of becomes skewed by the confirmation bias. So this is kind of like, so it's both sort of really obviously fascinating, but then it's also a, a bit kind of like demoralizing, right? Because it's like, if these cognitive biases sort of prevent us from forming accurate opinions of other people, then like, what are we supposed to do? How do we actually get, get to get to build trust with other people and actually, you know, form relationships with them? Mm. Well, that's a great question. And that, that's the heart of why we seem to have these long-term disputes is a lot of the research follows a, a cognitive rational actor perspective. Um, so they, they treat everyone as though they're a rational actor. And, and I don't know if you guys have ever met people before, but we're not always rational. Yeah. And, and so partly this is at the extremes. Uh, everything starts to break down. And you guys, you guys won't have noticed this in the, living in the U.S. with Republicans and Democrats, but um, but at the extremes, we become irrational. There's still a lot of space in between those extremes where we can have positive influence. Uh, we can start to try to build trusting relationships, and I've been plunked into the middle of some really difficult spots um, and seen traction. Right, so so. It's just a heads up that we need to be aware of the story that other people are telling. And we actually need to talk to them about that story and, and share our own story so that we have a, a more complete picture and are able to build trust more effectively with one another. We need to try to reset those emotional states or, or generate mildly positive ones if we can. 
Yeah. And then, so and just thinking it through, right. Because it seems like such an automatic process. What would you do? And so let's just go into the model itself. Right. So first of all, sure. what is it that sort of, how do we build trust? And then how is it that like, in terms of these actual barriers, how does it that, how do we begin kind of thinking about them and uh, I guess a more of a constructive way and maybe battling them is the wrong term, but sort of combating them in the way. Oh yeah. So one of the, there are a number of challenges. Um, when people are deciding whether to trust someone, they ask themselves two fundamental questions. And the first question is how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived mm -hmm. uncertainty. And the second question is if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability. And so those things combine, you know, uncertainty times vulnerability gives us a level of perceived risk. And if our perception of the risk goes beyond the threshold we're comfortable with, we don't trust. If it's beneath it, then we do. And so from a cognitive perspective, building trust is fairly simple. It's where does uncertainty come from and how do we take steps to reduce that? Where does vulnerability come from? How do we take steps to help people manage that? And, you know, we think about relationships, shallow relationships have high levels of uncertainty, which means they can only tolerate small ranges of vulnerability. Deeper relationships have low levels of uncertainty, which means that we can accept a broader range of vulnerability. And so, the challenge then becomes, well, where does uncertainty come from and how do we take steps to, to proactively reduce it? How do we be more intentional? And where do those perceptions of vulnerability come from and how do we take steps to reduce those? And this, this actually helps explain why trust has been in such significant dramatic decline over the last decade, because levels of uncertainty have gone up, you know, particularly around the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, around debates that we're having, about global warming, about gun control, about you know, geopolitical events, about gender or race, all of these things and the, the changing norms that, and values that we're seeing have all significantly increased uncertainty. And we haven't really been all that systematic about reducing it or, or even thinking about it. We see this with virtual teams. We see it you know, popping up all over the place where you know, our, our intent remains the same and our habits remain the same, but the, the, the context has changed. And so that's, you know, that's the approach that I take and it actually gives people traction. Uh, a lot of the leaders I work with uh, or the people I work with report remarkable change fairly quickly because they're actually able to be thoughtful about what levers they're pulling and how to be more intentional in the relationships that they have. And you, know, you asked about some of the barriers. Well, there's some real challenges that we face. One of which is that 95% of people think they're more trustworthy than average. Mm -hmm. and, and aside from being statistically impossible, it also mm -hmm. means that when we run into a trust problem, even if we manage to somehow miraculously identify it as such, we think it's somebody else's problem. Mm -hmm. And so we don't engage ourselves. Um, you know, and, and people, there's a subset of people who think that trust is too complex. There's just nothing you can do about it. And that's not true. You know, I've, I've spent 20 years helping individuals and organizations, and I've got a litany of stories about remarkable turnarounds. Um, you know, and, and executives I've worked with who've had incredible experiences. Um, so we, we know that this is something we can systematically work on. 
what's fascinating about your book, what I find very interesting is that a lot of the literature out there about trust, like for example, um, I happen to, I mean, I can't probably due to our social media policy, maybe talk about what company I work at, but I work at a telecoms company. And essentially a lot of our corporate trainings do talk about the importance of trustworthiness, right? In the, in the environment and in terms of uh, uh, building uh, relationships with other team members, but they don't always go over ways to build trust, right? We just yeah. know that's an important factor. But what I love about your book is you actually talk about ways to sort of cultivate that trust. And I was just uh, wanted to ask, what are, what are some, maybe, uh, as you put it in the book, what are some levers maybe that we can use in order to uh, foster or build more trust? Uh, with our teammates or in relationships yeah yeah and that's uh, that's the source of real frustration for me because there's some people with really big uh platforms mm. who are talking about trust in such an abstract way that there's really not a lot we can do about it um and so you know when i when i start thinking about trust i, I think we all have the capacity to build trust some are better than others and those who aren't very good have a lever that they pull Usually it's the ability lever, right? And you talked about the, the notion of trustworthiness. So, so there was a great article written by Roger Mayer and his colleagues uh, in 1995. And it's it's been the impetus for a lot of the work, the popular press work on trust. They talk about three elements that drive perceptions of trustworthiness. So those are benevolence, integrity, and ability. Uh, benevolence is a belief you've got my best interest at heart. Integrity is you know that you follow through on promises and that your actions align with the values you express. And then abilities, do I have the competence to do what I say I'm gonna do? So, so we see people pull the ability lever all the time. I have these kinds of academic credentials. I have this kind of background, this much experience. You know, and, and so that lever gets used a lot, but what if the gap isn't there? What if the gap is around benevolence or integrity? Or, or what if we don't understand the context very well? Um, and so, you know, when I, I'll talk with families, because uh, I've, I've done work with families who are trying to build stronger relationships within the family unit. And I'll say to the parents, I'll say, who here has the kids, their kids' best interest at heart? And all the hands go up, right? Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and when you flip that question and say, well, how many of your kids would say that? You get about <laughs> a third, right? And wow. it's, it's somewhat hesitant. And so if they're struggling in a place where it's supposed to be obvious, how does, how do we do that? You know, how do you guys do that as, as podcasters or how does a leader do that? Or how does your organization do that? Right. And, and in large part, you know, we start asking people about the conversations they could have. Mm-hmm. Um, and the approach that I've started to take, because I think so much of the training and, and, development work that we do is fire and forget. You know, there, there are shockingly small numbers around how much of training or education we actually retain and, and use. And so I've been working really hard to get people to actually start applying the concepts because that's how we see behavior change. Mm-hmm. And so for me, we've created a, a trust canvas that has a set of questions you can ask. So let's, let's take benevolence as an example. You know, I, I was working with one of my uh, MBA students in Luxembourg. And what I do is I get them to focus on a relationship. And so I said, tell me what relationship you're going to focus on. And he said, well, my girlfriend. I said, great. So tonight you're going to go home 
and you're going to say to your girlfriend, my instructor asked me to think about a relationship that really mattered to me, and I thought about you. So that's step one of showing benevolence. I'm thinking about the other person, and I'm transparent about that. So then you're going to say, he asked me what mattered most to you. And I said, family, is that right? And I said, and when she says, yeah, that's right. Well, you're now inviting her to be part of the conversation and including her in the, the decision about what matters most to her. And when she says, yes, th then you're going to say, well, then I assume that it matters to you that I get along well with your family. So I'm going to start spending more time with them. I'm going to have lunches. I'm going to call them. I'm going to be more open and transparent with them because it matters to you. And I said, now we've actually surfaced what matters and we've shown that we're taking steps to act in a way that's benevolent. We've been transparent about that. And he came back the next day and said, wow, did that ever go well? You know, my, my, my girlfriend says, I'm allowed to talk to you whenever I want. Um, <laughs> and so, so we start to see people actually pulling that lever. And, and what we start to do is give people scripts that, you know, just getting out there and practicing, having a conversation about trust um, because it feels fuzzy. And one of the things I try to do with the model I use and the, with the conversation around levers is clarify and bring, bring a bit of simplicity. You know, I've had, I've had tech guys who are, you know, they've got people skills like you read about. Um, and they, they say, oh my God, you've given me a manual to actually deal with people. And I now have a formula that I can use and I can go through and, and the success I'm having in my relationships in life is dramatically improved. And so, you know, we'll start people off with a really easy sort of first conversation. We'll say, hey, I'm taking this course on trust. I've decided to become, to try to be more intentional about my relationships. I'm supposed to practice with someone. Would you, would you be willing to practice with me? And the response is incredibly positive and powerful for them. And then it gives them that positive reinforcement to, hey, this stuff actually works. And they start to add it to their toolkit. You know, so, so I said those who aren't very good at building trust have a lever that they pull. Those who are a bit better have multiple levers. And, and I list 10 in the book. And those who are really good have multiple levers and they know when to pull which one. And so what we do in the book and what I do in the courses I deliver and the workshops and all that stuff is I show people the levers and show them how to pull them. And then they start to get a chance to practice them and they start to be able to diagnose a little bit on their own. Yeah. And take our culture is super interesting because I think we mainly focus on the ability portion. So I've yeah. said this before, and this is a, a bit embarrassing to talk about, but like uh, when I was, um, I don't know, maybe a novice or whatever, I can't even say this was that long ago, but when I would go on dates, I would frequently talk about all of the reasons why that person should like me like have a litany of accomplishments. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, not only, I mean, I, I don't think that that in itself is a terrible thing, but like I would hyper-focus on them and kind of, you know, pretty much it was excessive. So um, then I, you know, try to figure out like, what is it that's going wrong about my dates i'm doing all of these great things i have this like list of achievements why isn't this person impressed by me and just my first probably thought on that is you're probably talking too much about yourself and not asking about yes. them right yeah yeah right there so yeah it, yeah and then when we yeah exactly right so it's like when we think about building trust right if uh we're thinking about benevolence right so that would be the component that i would think that i'm missing because if we're thinking about benevolence what i think you're saying is that the person sort of gets equal airtime, right also i mean there's nothing wrong with demonstrating value and sort of explaining why you're valuable in a way sure it's just that 
too much of that mm -hmm. is probably what you know might might have not made it go well yeah probably yeah and there so i think i think what you're saying is that like when you're looking at the model all of these components are equally as necessary you can't just have one as opposed to the others well there's a there's a minimum threshold for each mm -hmm. right and and when we're looking for a a brain surgeon we're not looking for someone who's going to say nice things to us we're looking for someone who's incredibly confident and has a steady hand um one of the challenges that we face though is that we don't always we assume what excellence looks like for other people and we don't often include them in that conversation so when i deal with senior executives i'll say to them who here's a great leader and all the hands will go up again and i'll say great what does that mean and you get this long uncomfortable silence mm -hmm. And then the, somebody will say, you know, well, it's just something I thought I should think I'm good at. <laughs> and so then we start to unpack it and we say, well, have you seen people who are great leaders? What was it about them that made you say, yeah, that's a great leader? And who should be involved in that conversation? And so, you know, when you go on your dates, it actually be helpful to know what they think great looks like, what ability looks like. Because part of that may be, someone who's a great listener, right? And, and so we need to be able to adopt the other person's perspective a bit if we're trying to build trust with them. And a lot of times I'll have leaders say to me, well, I do all those things. And my response will be, says who? Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter if I tell you that I'm great. It's, it matters if you think I'm great. Right. And this same piece around benevolence is... is you know, if, if we don't include the other person in that conversation, then we're making guesses. And sometimes, we're, sometimes we're right. Um, sometimes we're not right. Imagine you guys are walking past me and I'm sitting having dinner with someone and I'm having this huge dessert and you stop and you go, wow, Darrell, you're really not going to eat that, are you? Mm -hmm. And you think you have my best interest at heart, but maybe it doesn't land quite that well, right? Because this body doesn't just happen, guys. I mean, there's years of neglect involved. And so... You know, we have to actually find a way to surface from the other person what the what the best interests are, what benevolence would look like for them. And again, a large part, we start with the conversation. So we'll say, you know, hey, remember I'm taking that course on trust. Well, one of the things they talked about was benevolence, having someone else's best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always seem to land that way. Have, have you ever experienced that? And now you're pulling the other person into that conversation. And they'll say, oh, God, yeah, you know, I've, you know, with my aunt or my cousin or my brother or my sister. Um, and, and they'll start reminiscing about moments where they tried to do what was best, you know, the whole no good deed goes unpunished thing. Mm -hmm. And, and then you'll you sort of start to narrow the funnel when you say, well, have you ever had somebody really act in your best interest, like where you just really felt it? What was that like? What, what did they do? And so now you're starting to surface from them what benevolence looks like for them. And you're getting hints about how you could be benevolent. And then you narrow the funnel even further and you say, what would it look like if I was benevolent to you? What does success look like for you and how do I help you get there? And again, it's a profound conversation. And this is one of the levers I get people to pull when I'm advising them about job searches. Because when we're interviewing for a job, we pull the ability lever really hard and consistently. Mm -hmm. And if we flip that a little bit and say, you know, what are the biggest challenges here and how can I help fix them? Or 
what is your role and how does it overlap with this role you're hiring for? And what would a good colleague look like? Or what are some of the challenges you're facing? How can I help you be successful? Hmm. All of a sudden it changes the dynamic because remember, we're not just hiring a set of skills. We're hiring a human being that we're going to have to interact with mm -hmm. for months or years. And we'd much rather have somebody we're comfortable with and we like being around. You know, and the, I got to tell you, the success rate for people who follow that advice is really high. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, I think this was maybe about a couple of weeks ago or so. I was watching this video on Facebook. Uh, I believe it was with Simon Sinek, and he was doing uh, this little clip of his. Uh, he was talking about uh, trustworthiness, right? And right. talking about the Marines and how they sort of select, you know, the best of the best and who goes on that team of uh, five or so people, if I, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And and then he had this sort of graph and one was measuring their ability, one, one part of the graph, and the other part was their level of trustworthiness. And then right. he started talking about, well, um, he started asking the audience, uh, would you rather have somebody of high ability, low trustworthiness or low ability, low trustworthiness, right? And then he started getting into, well, actually what they select for in these teams is actually somebody either of a low ability, high trustworthiness or medium ability, medium trustworthiness. And they never look at the person who, even though their metrics are fantastic and amazing, if they're not trustworthy, how could you trust them on your with your life or, oh, right. or whatever on the team? And yeah. I found that very fascinating because very technically speaking, I mean, if you did select someone to be on your team that is uh, of low ability, but high trustworthiness, I mean, it probably you could kind of get the sense that maybe you can, you know, train them on those skills to up their ability. But trustworthiness is, I mean, sure, that can be trained for that's sure. A, that's, that's a clinical thing. disorder, man, because for that, that person would need therapy, I think, at that point. Which person? <laughs> no, the, no, the low trustworthiness one, right? Because it's like you for could sure. train ability, but when we're thinking of trustworthiness, you're probably thinking, even thinking years of therapy. Well, there's that. And mm -hmm. then, well, I mean, also, this yeah. book is a great resource on ways to do that. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, uh, it, it seems to be harder, though, to yeah. train trustworthiness, which is why they select for that right. first. And I thought that was interesting and connects to what you're talking about. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the one of the pieces of research that I've seen recently is is a piece that looks at what lever is most important for leaders versus those they lead. Mm -hmm. And for leaders, they're most concerned about competence, right? They, they care about ability. They want their subordinates to be able to do the tasks they're supposed to do. And so it has primacy. The other levers still matter, right? But the one that they sort of weigh the most heavily is, is ability. For subordinates, it's benevolence. Mm -hmm. And so they're more concerned that their boss has their back, that mm -hmm. their boss has the best interest of the organization and them in mind when they're making decisions. And when we start to think about how quickly things are changing, the definition for ability is a moving target. So mm -hmm. what makes a great leader today is not the same as what made a great leader a decade ago. Um, and integrity has become more challenging because it's hard to follow through on longer term commitments because the world keeps changing so quickly. Right. And, you know, the notions of what good values are is seems to be a moving target. Mm -hmm. um, but benevolence is the piece that sticks, right? I can tell you that I'm going to look out for your best interest no matter what happens. And that's more stable than a lot of the other lovers.
Yeah. And then, you know, I'm thinking just in terms of like the kind of positive referential beliefs that we have about ourselves. It's like, you know, going back to obviously that initial paragraph that I read, it's, it's, it's so hard to just think of the fact that like, you know, we have these kind of biases, but like for some people it's negative, some people it's positive. Right. So it's really interesting how that works. So like clinically speaking, if let's say somebody's high in the narcissism spectrum, they're going to obviously just continue to confirm that they're an amazing person, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, if they either have borderline personality disorder or vulnerable narcissism, the idea is they just kind of kind of keep looking at the negative information and sort of keep, let's say, I don't know, whatever, uh, fostering or whatever you'd want to call it sort of, uh, let's say, if you look at it kind of like as a bubble of self-esteem, it's like the negative self-image just grows and grows and grows with each, with each kind of confirming piece of evidence. So it's like, here's the kind of major question that I think that we would have. If 95% of people think that we're above average parents, uh, we're smarter than kind of, you know, again, the norm or the average, if we think we're just better overall humans, right? How do we begin to start to tackle that? Because people don't really like to be kind of reduced to even the average. People don't like to be told, well, hey, I know you think that like you're the best parent in the world, but it's not kind of possible, or at least it's very unlikely considering the fact that 95% of you guys think that you're the best parents in the world, right? So how do we kind of, so how do we begin to address that in a way that doesn't necessarily just completely deflate one's ego or self-esteem? Right. And and so I think partly this is a conversation around skill building, Mm -hmm. right? That, that building trust is a skill we can all improve at. And it's one of the ways so I try to motivate a lot of these conversations by telling people why trust matters for them, you know, in different settings. Um, you know, when I have a new client, I'll say, you know, trust is really, it drives value and it really drives value for you. And no matter where you are on the continuum of, of your ability to build trust, we can help you move to a better place. And really it's about becoming more intentional about those skills. And so it's, it's not about, coming in and sort of rattling people's cages and saying you suck it's mm-hmm. it's more around you know the world's gotten more challenging and leaders that we talk to they they vacillate between trust is really important and trust is the most important thing for them as a leader because think about this the more senior you become the less direct control you have over outcomes the more dependent mm-hmm. you are on the people that report to you for any success mm-hmm. and so you're vulnerable to those folks uh, and that's why we've seen some bizarre behavior from leaders with the advent of virtual teams where they can't keep an eye on people and, and the spike in uncertainty that they're experiencing. They're getting really uncomfortable. And so, you know, we need to have this conversation in a way that doesn't diminish people. You're absolutely right. It, it's got to be a way that sort of gives them hope about things that they can improve and work on. And I've seen some organizations that are measuring trust levels and telling people it's important, but then not giving them any tools in order to get stronger at it or fix it, Um, which is puts them in such a difficult place. And so I think that if, if people are given feedback, you know, and this is what I used to do with my sons is I would, I would come to them and I'd say, you know, they played hockey. I'd say, you did, you know, you had a great game. Here's the things you did well. Now, would you like to hear some feedback? And they would always say, yeah, I want to get better. Okay. And so once we've included people in that conversation around, how do I strengthen this? How do I turn this from, you know, something I'm average at or really good at to something I'm exceptional at? And it gives them an intentionality. And I got to tell you, a lot of times when I say, you know, we're going to do a trust course, people show up really hesitant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
because they think we're going to hold hands and we're going to sing Kumbaya and we're going to fall off of things. And that's not it at all, right? This is a very practical applied approach to helping people better understand the mental model that people are using when they build trust. Yeah. So I guess if, um, let's say I had a, a team that uh, works, that I work with, right, essentially, right. and I wanted to build trust with them um, along the lines of, you know, the methods that you're, uh, that we're discussing here, um, I guess, asking them what I can do to maybe uh, be a better leader for them or what it, what is it they would like to see more like kind of because I, I realize that including them in the conversation seems to be a big factor here because right. um, I mean I could probably believe I'm uh, being benevolent anytime I ask someone oh would do you need help with this uh, I have your back and things like that and not just saying it of course being aligned in my words actions behaviors being congruent right as, as you right. talk about in the book but yeah I, I, I think what you're sort of inspiring me to uh, do is also at, you know, include them by asking what is it you kind of expect or would like to see more of um, that is that maybe like a good thing to try to do. That's a big part of it. And, and yeah. it's, it's having the same vocabulary it seems to be really powerful. Mm -hmm. So I, I have done some work with SAP, a huge global software company. And the benefits of that have been that they're global. So I've had a chance to try the model in different parts of Asia and North America and South America and all over Europe. And, uh, and it seems to hold. Um, but it's also been some real practical applied experience. They, they use a measure to measure trust levels for their leaders. They're one of the organizations that does that. Now, I'm not crazy about the measure they use, but they actually ask the question. And I had, you know, a leader that I worked with whose score was 13 out of 100. Mm. Um, and their, their score goes from negative 100 to positive 100. And I knew that this person was capable and competent and, and caring and, and had the potential to be a great leader. Um, and so what I did was, you know, we, we coached her for a bit, but then I came in and talked with her team. And I said, here's how trust works. And so I took a lot of the ambiguity out of it. And it made the conversation so much easier, right? Because if I say to you, do you trust me? And you say, no, my feelings get hurt. And now you're uncomfortable saying that in the future because there may be repercussions. But if I say to you, you know, there's elements of uncertainty and vulnerability here. How uncertain are you? That's an easier conversation. Mm -hmm. And if I say, how, how vulnerable are you feeling? That's an easier conversation. And so we walk through the model and I said, so benevolence is one of the levers. What could she do to show benevolence? And it formed a conversation that, that gave her some practical things that she could do, but it also gave them the language to use in the future. And, you know, here's what integrity is. So are there commitments that, that she's making that she's not following through on? Are there actions that she or the organization are taking that don't seem to align with the values they've expressed. And then here's confidence. What's a good leader look like? And now let's explore the context. How do we, how do we explain the rules of the game in a way that, because the context constrains our behavior, right? So we, we do certain things because we have to, or because our job description dictates them or, uh, or because we don't want to look bad. 
And after we'd had that conversation, they redid the assessment three months later, she got an 80. And so 13 to 80, and now she's at 100 and thriving, right? And so those stories come up over and over and over again. When we give people the tools to actually do something, it, it's such a relief for so many of them. Yeah. And, you know, it makes me think like uh, when we're thinking about integrity, it seems to me like, um, well, obviously it goes without saying that integrity is super important, but it just made me think of an example where um, like a lot of times when we figure out like what a person actually thinks about us or like, you know, just the way they kind of see the relationship on the whole, we often find it out from other people. So um, I had a conversation with uh, one of my clients the other day. Uh, so he's a kid. And so he was worried about his dad. And he said, you know, like uh, my dad is like, uh, I think he's going to judge me. I think he's going to like really be upset with me. So um, the kind of context of this was that he essentially didn't want to get his driver's license. He didn't feel like he was right ready to because he has right. a ton of anxiety and he's like you know i'm just like afraid that my dad's gonna like really be upset with me and so he tells me i had like a freak out like a huge just like hysterical attack right and so you know i said to him i had a conversation with him and saying that um i said you know like look man i was like i have a like patients that i've seen before whose uh, parents are like pretty critical right so they would call me and they would kind of complain and they would say oh well i just don't understand why my kid can't do this right or why he can't get his stuff together you know this is what therapy needs to focus on yada yada you know just a litany of complaints right. so I'm like, okay, I'm like, I get it, right? In your mind, you want the best for your kid. And this is how you think you can kind of go about doing it by telling the therapist, here are all of the things wrong, you kind of go and fix mm -hmm. it, right? So, but then I was telling this kid, I was like, you know, man, your dad is probably the only person that legit never complains about you, never says anything negative. So whenever he and I have a conversation, the first question is, okay, how can I help him? Like, what is it that, what are you, like, what are you seeing or what are you picking up on that I'm just not getting from him? And what is it that I could do to help him, you know, whatever direction that, you know, he wants to go in. So right. it's, so fascinating, man, because on the other hand, you have like parents who just, again, they're like, oh, how do I like mold this kid into what I want him to be? But then right. on the other hand, we're obviously thinking about this idea of, um, you know, what's best for the other person. Here's this dad who's like, no, no, I just have no idea. I just need you to help me to tell me, first of all, what, what he actually wants and what he needs and how do I kind of get him there? So when right. we're thinking of integrity, you know, kind of molding these ideas together, you see a lot of times integrity kind of happens in the way that's like um, we sort of get to see behind the veil often, like what actually people think about us and whether they actually do have our best interests at heart. So yeah. it's like, I guess I wish we had more of these moments, you know, where it's like we don't have to kind of do the guesswork of trying to figure out like, OK, this person says that he or she wants what's best for me. I mean, even though they're acting like it, how do I really know? How can I tell? I mean, I guess I would wonder, are there other ways behind besides, you know, somebody telling us like, oh, well, this is what this person thinks about you when you're not around. Are there any? other ways that we can start to build or continue to build integrity with other people yeah so that's a great question and and part of you know for the integrity piece when i think about pulling that lever a lot of it is around having our actions align and being clear about okay so because with my kids i talk about having a relentlessly positive story mm -hmm. and so i tell that story to them but then when they come to me with new information they they see it start to play out because i'll start asking questions about the other actors about the situation about what was going on and i assume the best of them to start and you know partly that's about having this sort of positive story but also about referencing back to that because 
You're right. I, I think a, a big chunk of the mental health struggles that we have are, are a defective story that we've got running in our head. Mm-hmm. And as a parent, part of the role that I play is creating a safe harbor, creating a place where my sons feel safe and accepted and loved and appreciated so that they can go out and take risks in the world. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I do is, is you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in a bit of a privileged space because I get to tell wonderful stories about my sons in public places like this, mm-hmm. right? So on this podcast, I'll tell you, my sons are the center of my life. Mm-hmm. They mean everything to me and they're incredible human beings. And I dedicated my book to them. Um, they make me want to be a better person. And so I get this great opportunity to say this, knowing that at some point they may stumble across this podcast and listen to it. And know this is what dad says about me. And it's the experience that I have of him as well, mm-hmm. right? That there's this consistency. Right. Um, and so part of that is telling our friends the positive story we have about our kids and helping them reinterpret events through a positive lens. Um, you know, and, and we could do the same thing with, with people we work with. You know, I run into so many people who have this sort of confidence, confidence gap. It, it seems to happen more often with women um, mm-hmm. where they are remarkably confident, but, but lack confidence and are convinced that they're just a hair's breadth away from being fired. Mm-hmm. And, and you go back and you reinterpret the world for them through a more positive lens and it's compelling, right? But, but it needs to happen multiple times. They need to be reassured over and over again. And, you know, we, we need to help people build a more positive narrative about themselves. And that's one of the ways we show benevolence as well. And, you know, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories is my son, my younger son, Alexander, incredibly funny and observant and intelligent and late right so so i came to understand through you know one of the courses i was sitting in uh on parenting with a woman named allison reese that we have these individual traits and sometimes we have stronger versions of those and they come with strengths and weaknesses and he was highly distracted which which meant that he was observant and empathetic and all these wonderful traits but he was also late all the time and he's gotten much better at it as he's gotten older but you know, when he was a young, young boy, he, he struggled mightily with it. And there was a day that I was standing outside waiting for him. And, you know, I'm waiting for him outside his school. And we only get a certain amount of time together. And so there's some anxiety around that, mm-hmm. you know, about us losing time. And, and all the other kids have come out and the teachers have come out and the janitor's trying to lock up the building. And he finally comes out of the school. And he, he approaches me and his feet are dragging, his head is down. And while he's, while I'm waiting, I'm realizing I have a choice. You know, I can be frustrated and angry with him for being late, or I can accept him for all that he is and realize that this isn't intentional, right? That he's not trying to send me a message about my importance or, or any of those things. This is just him. And I can either accept him and love him for all that he is or not. And so he approaches me and he says, dad, I'm really sorry. I'm late. Mm-hmm. And I thought I can yell at him like everyone else has been doing, but it's not changing the behavior. And so I just said to him, buddy, you're worth the wait. Mm-hmm. And that 
acceptance in that moment was powerful for him. And it was powerful for our relationship. Mm-hmm. And so that became my mantra from then on. You're worth the wait. Yeah, and, yeah, and no one's more important than you are to me. And whoever's coming next, they can wait. <laughs> Yeah, and then when you were thinking about, again, like these sort of cognitive constructs, right? How did you overcome the personalization aspect of it? Because, I mean, it's really easy to just say, well, this is a chronic pattern. This is happening to me. Obviously, he's not taking me seriously. Right. Um, and that's one of, the, one of the challenges we face, right, is letting go of our own ego and realizing yeah. that, you know, we're the center of our own world, but we're not the center of everybody else's world. Right. Um, and... You know, I just I'd seen the pattern happen often enough, and I knew that he loved me, you know, and that I, I loved him fiercely. And, and what he really needed was acceptance. And, you know, my sons are different, right? They have different interests and different things that they're passionate about and different spikes. And uh, they're both amazing, but they're, they're slightly different. And at one point he said to me, I'm sorry, I'm not more like my older brother, Thomas. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, buddy, I spend zero time wishing you were somebody else. <laughs> you know i wouldn't want you to be anything other than who and what you are hmm. and so we need to take our opportunities to affirm those things and you know i grew up with a father who who was a perfectionist and who wanted who who never gave me credit for any kind of success and i was very determined not to be that you know perfect was just okay it created an insecure overachiever hmm. and I wanted my sons to have a stable bedrock foundation from which to leap from, to take risks in the world, to be fearless, to know that there was always a safe place for them. Yeah, and this makes me think of something that Alan would say that uh, when we would talk about just like what it's remember that conversation that we had um, when we were talking about like, what is it like if you just tell yourself a different story if you're going outside, like if you're just like going out into the world, and let's say you're going on a train, because remember we talked about like the somewhat of the phobia that you had about trains. And if you tell yourself the story of like, yeah, these people aren't going to necessarily harm me, or they're not going to try to do that. So but, sure, it's, but sure, that's yes. what we're so, talking about, right? Sort of yeah. de-egoizing it. So, so, right. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I think what you're talking about, though, is kind of like your beliefs about other people in general. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, sure. I, I used to have a little bit of a higher anxiety, a little higher neuroticism. So if I'd go on, yeah. let's say, the train here in New York. Yeah, uh, I'm thinking, what is this person thinking of me? Oh, they looked funny in my direction. Mm-hmm. Or how am I coming off to them? And all, all these things that are a little too self-conscious and not really right. kind of being in the moment. and Very personal, of of very personal. Sure, yeah. yeah. And it, it felt automatic, even if I logicized it or intellectualized that um, they weren't, you know, that it's in my head. It still right. was so automatic and ingrained that it was very hard to sort of um, unwire. But yeah, I, I started to try to adapt this uh, perspective of, you know, like maybe, maybe not, maybe everyone in the world is, is just like you, right? With right. these same, same kinds of worries, or, or maybe everyone here is maybe, you know, everyone in their head either thinks they're uh, like, everyone thinks they're the good guy, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone yeah. um, wants to be uh, right. Everyone wants to come off well, uh, generally speaking. Um it's possible that everyone here is a, like a potential friend of mine, maybe like right. 
and the world isn't isn't so hostile now is that really was that the point that you were yeah. really yeah that was it that was it because yeah. we were talking about like sort of personalizing and the idea is like so what i was asking daryl right is how do you get out of that framework of like oh well this says something negative about me i just to tag and add that something there mm -hmm. um yeah i mean there, there could be a million different variables uh, or an infinite number of variables that contribute to let's say somebody being uh late for instance when be yeah, it might not be something against you. It could be something else in their environment, something else that they're thinking about. Maybe uh, something that happened to them a week ago. It could be um, just that they're just distracted by something that uh, that's going on. It has nothing to do with you at all. Right. Um, and right. it's not it's not personal. It's not something that it's against you. And that's why it's sometimes easier to accept because, I mean, if you think that it's against you, of course, yeah, you're going to uh form an ego around it react to what they're doing it's a personal slight against you it right. gives this whole chain of feedback that that leads to negative outcomes but if if you realize that there could be a whole bunch of things contributing to their like even at work let's say if somebody is late is is it really a slight against me or the leadership or the people there or is it just hey it's remote maybe some equipment wasn't working maybe right. it's not that even if it was a little more of um say it's even let's give it even a neg let's say it's negative let's say it's actually that they are let's say they're pretending that their equipment isn't working or something like that right. <laughs> even if it's that it's still not really a slight against you or the company uh, in a sense i mean it's not good for performance or for productivity but at least when you're not personalizing it you're uh, there's more resources freed up so that you can sort of have a conversation with that person and come from a different person as opposed to this negative this is against me perspective right. maybe like what can we do to sort of um change your perception of work so this way this doesn't happen again where you don't pretend that your equipment doesn't work maybe maybe right. Um, what's what's the purpose here? Can we get uh, maybe let's talk about the purpose of what we're doing here, and maybe that'll be like your north star that helps you to um, not have these um, negative feelings around work or right. stuck in the automaticity of things in the sense that like you know it's oh it's another day at work. Mm -hmm. This is right. you know uh, this I have to do this for that paycheck for this for that. But when you create some sort of a, a purpose around it that they could resonate with, and you have to find what they resonate with, um, like you said, like maybe if, depending on which who your audience is, you might frame it as this is what's going to bring you more value, depending on who you're speaking to. Right. You might say this is what's going to move you up in the company to a different person. It might say this will build up this skill, um, which maybe uh, you can suss out that that's what's important to them. It's context right. dependent, but there, there are ways to sort of um, by not reacting, by not uh, egotizing, is that a word? Egotizing. I would use that. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Egotizing. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, yeah. By not uh, reacting, essentially. Yeah. You you then are still you you have more of those resources to be able to have that uh, conversation. Um, right. Yeah, and not have that be something that's uh, a barrier to 
um, your success or their success. Right. And then Absolutely. so for, for Daryl, right. So I think this kind of is a great segue into the next topic, which I think should be vulnerability. Right. So now how do we get to that point where instead of just sort of defensing or defensing, instead of creating a defense and just barricading ourselves, like from us and the person, right. Just kind of uh, whatever, like this middle ground between us. Uh, how do we get to the point where, you know, we're able to say like, Hey man, here's this thing that like, it really hurt my feelings. Like, I would just want to understand, like, what is actually going on with you? Because what we tend to do is we just, you know, tend to say, you're an asshole. I can't believe you did this to me. I never want to talk to you again. Or if you're like a boss, that's, you know, here's your punishment, whatever that may be. Right. right. So, so how does vulnerability play into this? Right. And how do we actually, how do we start to think about vulnerability in a way that's sort of, um, more sort of practical, not manualized, but more sort of practical, right? What sort of steps would we need to start to take? Yeah, and this is usually this is the conversation where people become uncomfortable, right? Because yeah, they're right. to talk about vulnerability. And we start a lot of times by realizing that vulnerability is such a subjective thing. You know, I, when I was a doctoral student, uh, I had some good friends of mine ask me to come play poker, said it's, you know, 20 bucks. And it's just for fun, right? Well, so as a doctoral student, 20 bucks was a lot. Right. And I felt this profound sense of anxiety, not only around the money, but around my my friendships with them and what they were going to think of me. And I didn't think I was a very good poker player. And so I thought, well, this 20 bucks is gone. Right. You move forward and you've actually got a real job. 20 bucks doesn't feel like that big a deal. Right. And and so. It's around scarcity and in part we start by thinking about how's the other person vulnerable, but we try to have the conversation about what they think is at stake. And because our vulnerability is a combination of both the actual level of vulnerability we're experiencing and the exaggerations that we have. And so we may think we're far more vulnerable than we actually are, or we may think we're far less vulnerable than we really are. And so starting to have those conversations around vulnerability uh, and one of the things we can do is initiate by going first, right? We can, we can initiate norms of reciprocity by being a little bit vulnerable ourselves first mm. saying, you know, here's what I think is at stake in this is, is that consistent with what you think is at stake? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and if, if things went wrong, here's what I would, you know, here's what I think some of the alternatives are. Is that aligned for you? Or are there other things you can think of? And as we start discussing alternatives and making it easier for folks, um, that sense of vulnerability starts to fade a little bit. And one of, the, one of the challenges we're seeing in organizations is that a lot of times people have a fairly set level of vulnerability, right? They're, it's where their job is, it's where they get paid, it's, it's where their future aspirations are, their sense of self, their, their identity. All of those things are tied up in this. And then we start to see massive fluctuations and uncertainty on the other side. And that causes our perception of risk to balance. And it makes people really uncomfortable. And so they start to try to disengage. They start to become, try to become less vulnerable, look for other options. And you know, who leaves first? The best people leave first because they've got the best options. And so we need to understand how people are feeling vulnerable. And we can take steps to reduce that for folks, right? By giving them more options, by providing insurance. You know, if it's an organization, we can give, we can have good outplacement programs. Or if I'm a leader and I've got some good people that I work with, actually 
shining a light on them for the rest of the organization so that if my unit loses headcount, there's a better chance that they're going to be picked up by somebody else within the organization. These are all ways that we can take steps to reduce their vulnerability. And so, you know, this is one of the places where my research sort of uh, is a, in addition to a lot of the other trust research, because most trust research treats, doesn't talk about vulnerability. And so it treats trust like a dichotomous variable, right? Like it's either present or absent, like an old school light switch. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all you have to do is say to people, well, we trust some people more than others. And they go, well, of course we do, right? Like, how did this guy get a PhD? <laughs> um, but overwhelmingly, that's where our heads go. And so, you know, one of the struggles we face is this profound lack of awareness about our own vulnerability or how to handle that or manage it or somebody else's. And so by starting to bring these things forward with conversation and, uh, and you know, a little bit of empathy, uh, you know, trying to do some perspective taking, we can actually take steps to say, well, how is this other person vulnerable? And then how could we take steps to make them more comfortable? To allow them to at least start in the relationship. How can you know? You think about uh, ice cream parlors that allow you a, a taste before you buy the whole cone, right? Mm -hmm. So they let you have a small bit of vulnerability. So you say, "Hey, I, I'd like to try the rum raisin." And then you discover that you don't like rum or raisin, right? And so you don't have a whole cone of it. You just had one mouthful of food. Um, and so. If we can think about ways that we reduce people's vulnerability, you know, and we see organizations do this all the time with, with generous return policies, uh, with try before you buy, like all of those kinds of things are, are ways for us to reduce vulnerability for somebody else. So they don't feel like the decision's catastrophic if they go wrong. Yeah, that made me think, uh, no, go ahead. What are you going to say about the podcast? What? what oh, okay. Well, what's fascinating is technically speaking, I mean, uh, I mean, this goes without saying, but yeah, we, we do the podcast, of course, for free. Not that we're expecting any kind of, you know, monetary value. Uh, of course, that that's great. And with advertisements and that, that's fantastic. And many podcasts have that sort of model, right? right. But uh, in general, just doing it for free, I, I, I could kind of see that as, you know, that that's us being vulnerable, right? I mean, we're yes. and also in a sense, we're being consistent by releasing every single week. Mm -hmm. So we're, we have that integrity, right. right? I'm not trying, by the way, I'm not trying to have an ego around it, but I'm just <laughs> saying like, if I had to be objective for a second, we I think you're doing what I do on dates. But I get your point. No, no, you're right, right. So the point is that no, you know, but that laugh was a signal that <laughs> that's where I should. <laughs> no, it's, it's all good. No, 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 no. but we we could. Um, but I think yeah, it could be related to the podcast in the sense I, yeah. benevolence, right? So, if, I, so there's yeah, a sorry. so there's a there's a, a great um her name is J Jane Freeman. She's a, a um I think she's a publicist, right? Mm -hmm. So what I really like about her ideas is that like so if she teaches like courses on like writing, right? Not necessarily okay. not right, not writing. It's more like writing publicity, right? Mm -hmm. So she will tell she'll often tell writers she'll say something like, "Look, guys, like I know when you go on podcasts, you want to sort of like hold back as much as possible because you want readers, you know, potential readers, obviously, to buy your books. You know, you want them to like inquire into your work and maybe other ways, you know, articles." 
those blogs, whatever. Right. But so she's like, the thing that I kind of teach them is that like, you shouldn't do that. You should actually just be as generous as possible. So it's yeah. like, if you go on a podcast and like, you know, the hosts or, you know, let's say listeners or whatnot, they ask you questions, just answer the questions. Like, don't do that. Don't be that person who just like is stingy with their work. I guess yeah. she's like, you know, I understand, obviously this is a market, you know, you're doing this for a living totally. But what she says is essentially generosity begets more generosity. So the idea yeah. is like, yeah, there you go. And that's sort of what vulnerability is too. Sort of the more vulnerable you are, the more benevolent you are, uh, the more integrity you have toward the other person, the more you kind of get it in return. And so yeah. that's what I sort of love about just relationships with people is there's a kind of symbiosis there where it's like the more you give, the more you get. But often, and I mean, again, this makes sense in our kind of um, inner sort of very neurotic, I guess, of society or economy where we try to keep as much to ourselves as possible and say, okay, we'll give you like a little bit, but the rest of it you have to buy. And so interestingly, from her perspective, it's not that. She's like, no, I promise you, if you don't give away your entire book, obviously, right? She's like, people will be interested. And if anything, they're going to have a, you know, going back to your spiral, right? They have a positive perception of you, which in turn, you know, kind of like, again, fosters whatever, uh, you know, sort of propounds on itself. So right. where you have like, you know, this, you have a good podcast, the person listens to you, they're like, hey, wow, like this person just gave us a bunch of great information about her book. I want to kind of look into it some more. Maybe I want to buy it, right? Or maybe I want to listen to another podcast with her on to get more details before I make a decision. But the idea, again, is that that generosity, right? It's sort of a, it fosters or fuels curiosity. And you already have formed a, or you have a positive perception formed in the other person's head, literally just by giving. That's it. That's all. Yeah. It takes. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And you're, you're absolutely right. And, and so for me, I'm trying to get the signal through the noise. I'm trying to help people build stronger relationships. That's my passion. And so it's, you know, I want everyone to read the book, not because I want the, you know, the money I get from selling the book, but more because I want this to actually start to change behaviors. And so whenever I'm talking to folks, if they ask me a question, I'll answer as honestly and completely as I can. And there's a bunch of free content on my website, you know, that people can go and read and listen to. And uh, I, I try to be as generous and as giving as I can for exactly that reason i believe that you know the my purpose my my mission is to actually make the world a better place mm -hmm. um and i'm i feel like i'm dropping small grains of sand in the ocean creating these little tiny ripples and i, I want people to come alongside me and pick up great big rocks yeah. Wow. I love that wow. so much. So, all right. Kind of been starting to wrap things up, Alan, any final questions for Daryl before we go? Oh yes. Uh, so if you wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, buy the book, uh, where, where could we find you and, and buy the book as well? So the website's uh, trustunlimited.com and there's a blog section there that has a bunch of stuff on it for free. Mm -hmm. um, the book is called building trust, exceptional leadership in an uncertain world. And it, it's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, for Canadians chapters in Indigo. Um, it's available in hardcover and, and electronic, and it's going to be out as an audible book fairly soon as well. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. So I'm, I'm really hoping that folks will talk about it, um, share it. I, I was at a conference and I know we're wrapping up, but I was at a oh, conference God. a few weeks ago at Duke, uh, where they were talking about rebuilding trust in institutions. And overwhelmingly, they said, things are really bad. And when, when asked, okay, well, how do we fix it? The response was, well, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's the right answer. 
I, th I think we do know. Um, we just need a better publicist, right? We just need more people aware of the how to use the model and how to think about it. It's possible. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right, Daryl, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, man. Thanks, this is guys. awesome. <laughs> Absolutely, man. We'll talk to you soon. Take Thanks. Care. Okay. Well, guys, again, the book is called Building Trust. Uh, it could be found on uh, online retailers such as Amazon and, of course, um, where uh, Daryl pointed us towards as well. Uh, links will be in the description as well. And guys, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell. The bell. Again, thanks for watching. Uh, keep seizing the moment and <laughs> see you next time.